dead. I'm dead? Can't be. I'm alive. Can't you tell I'm alive? I've got to make them see. You, listen to me. Look at me. Can't you hear me? Maybe it's a nightmare. If I try, I wake up. I've got to move. Get a finger. I know the rift is in your eye. What are you trying to define? Do you go on, I see the way. Why don't you see it? Why don't you see it? Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, it's Nick Vance, Paranoid Features on Letterboxd, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, you can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void, you can consider joining our Patreon, not only get cool perks, but you make this podcast as well as the Cinemadness movie possible. All right, Jim. It's still January. You know what that means. It's still January Giallo here on the Cinematic Void podcast and just Cinematic Void in general. Uh, as we are recording this episode, we've already had two of the Los Feliz 3 January Giallo screenings. So far, we showed Dario Argento's Creepers, as well as that ultra-rare Italian language, 35 millimeter Technicolor print of the perfume of the lady in black, which unfortunately is on its last legs. It's gone vinegar. Print star the shrink projection has had a hell of a time keeping that film in focus last night, but crowd seemed to enjoy it. And, you know, it's a rare treat. And sometimes you just got to appreciate the chance to see something, even if it's not perfect. So that's been going on. And. More January Giallo. I'm actually flying out on Friday to go to the Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline, Massachusetts to go host the screening of Umberto Lindsay's Orgasmo, a.k.a. Paranoia. You know, one of the films we talked about on last year's January Giallo episodes of the Cinematic Void podcast when we did Umberto Lindsay and Sergio Martino. It's not really a confession we have here, but Nick is not the biggest Giallo fan. And I constantly subject him to like, giallo films or giallo adjacent films i think we've done more giallo related things on this podcast than anything else and i feel like before we get into today's episode i should let nick say his piece on giallo and this is by no means nick saying like i hate this fucking shit or whatever i think it's a fair discussion because giallos as much as i love them aren't for everybody and nick isn't the target demographic so it's kind of kind of want to just talk about like what it is about the films that you don't connect with you, but certain ones do obviously, but that's any for, for any genre like me, I'll watch any 
piece of shit giallo regardless how ridiculous and bad is and you it's like some of these even things that i think are terrific you're like man that was a struggle yeah struggle yeah you're you're, uh throwing me under the bus here (laughs) well there's just something about the uh the the tone there's something about the pacing and the tone and a lot of times the plot, the nonsensical plot, you know, they're considered a Hitchcockian in a lot of ways. They're murder mysteries, but like it just never really hits that note for me. You know what I mean? Either. Uh, I don't know. Can I can I defend not liking Giallo's? It, it's not a lot of times it doesn't feel as, as gory as they can be. Uh, it doesn't feel enough like a horror film to me either. You know what I mean? Like I'm never scared watching a Giallo. I've never... I'm never, I don't know. Not that, not that I'm ever like sitting around. I'm scared at movies, <laughs> but, <laughs> but like, but there's, but that, but that tension there that I'm looking for in say a horror movie, I never quite find in a giallo. Um, so it just never quite just gets there for me, you know. And that's a fair point because, like, I know, I know a lot of people that unabashedly love giallos as much as I do, but. There's also people that like can't fucking stand them and you're not quite on that level because like the films we're going to be talking about today, you actually genuinely like both of them quite a bit and we'll get into that in a second. But like it's, you know, as someone who's like really loves this genre, but then has been very open about hating like, you know, back to the future goonies and stuff like that. Hating fun. Just call (laughs) me the, I'm the Euronymous of film. (laughs) No, no film, no fun. <laughs> There's a reference for like five people. I guess Nikolai will get that one. Shout out to Nikolai because he'll be the only one, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of interesting and it's like not even a taste thing because we like a lot of the same movies in general, music, that kind of thing. And, you know, it's like this is a genre that like I love to death and you are just like, please stop showing me these movies please stop doing podcast episodes on these movies. Just like anything, I will say that I, d- I have from you ended up seeing all of the, the really great ones, you know? So I, I, I have a list of giallos that I do really like, uh, but my patience for like, you know, Oh God, just pick a color and an animal and a fuck. Like, I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a fair, it's a fair point because, like, there is a certain point where, like, those movies were very carbon copy of each other. Like, you know, you obviously had the high points, but then, like, there's definitely, like, third-rate Xerox Argento getting made, which, like, I'll still watch and find something redeemable in, whereas, like, someone else will, like, not have the patience for. But the same goes for even just, like, 80s slasher movies. Like, I, I, I like them just fine. Do I need to see the C and D rate 80s slasher movie? No, never. <laughs> I no. But then again, some people, that's your shit. And see, that's I, awesome. See, those are the ones I like the best when you get to that level of slasher, because it's just like you're getting past like the studio stuff and like, but it, but that's, it's different. That's even different from like why I like Giallo's because like, I just think, I think it's because I like murder mysteries. You know, I like, I think the 70s cinema era in general is just like probably my favorite era of film. I just like how films looked. So I like how Mm -hmm. a lot of the Giallo films look. And I'm not talking about like the crazy gelled Argento lighting. I'm just saying 
the general look of 70s movies is like something that I really enjoy and like. I think it's just like the era, the vibe, weird occult elements, like the use of like the same actors throughout just popping up here and there. I mean, you know, it goes beyond giallos. I love a lot of the Italian stuff like the Euro crime, then later on the zombie movies and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I guess I'm just kind of more all in, but like, I think it's just like that weird murder mystery thing where like, you know, when it's done well, it's amazing. But when it's not done well, it's kind of an enjoyable train wreck where you just kind of like kind of figure out the director got confused at what the fuck they were supposed to be doing in the movie, which I there there's definitely been some giallos where I'm like, I think they just forgot who the killer was and then just pick someone at random <laughs> just to finish the movie. I mean, I, I can't point to anything specific, but like there, there's been moments of that with that out of the way. We are talking about two giallo films that you ended up enjoying. And there is going to be some debate about at least one of them about how giallo it actually is. But I I think there's enough things in there that kind of carry it through. So that gets into today's episode. We are going to be talking about the giallo films uh, by director Aldo Lado. He made two. Originally, we're going to do a third one, which was the Night Train Murders. But kind of thinking about it, I think that's closer to like the last house on the left, like cash in territory. And I think that deserves to be part of it episode where we talk about those kind of movies at some point. So we're just going to focus on the two main giallis he did make, which are Short Night of Glass Dolls and Who Saw or Die. And what I like about both of these, and we'll get into it as we talk about them, is like they're very unique and they're very different from each other, which is kind of very uncommon from a filmmaker that makes giallos. But before we get into that, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we're going to talk about the giallo films of Adelado here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. J&B Scotch Il più svitato, il più amato. Unbearable suspense keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Take a cult film odyssey into cinemadness with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinemanus Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time... See you in the void. Welcome back. You're talking about the Giallo films of director Aldo Lado here on the Cinematic Void podcast. I feel like this is going to be a tongue twister, so apologies in advance for when Nick and I screw it up. I should mention I first became aware of these movies when back in the day Anchor Bay put out the Giallo collection, which was a box set with four Giallo films. It actually had both Short Night of Glass Dolls and who saw or die in there, as well as the case of the bloody Iris, which was originally released as what are those strange drops of blood on Jennifer's body? Really crazy giallo title. Bloody Iris. I think you would like it's got Edwidge Fennec and George Hilton in it. And it also had the bloodstained shadow, which is another really, really good giallo. So I think strangely, I think bloodstained and um, 
Iris are the only two that at least domestically aren't on Blu-ray yet or haven't had remaster. So I have a feeling those will be coming at some point. But, you know, talk about Al Alado and like I hadn't watched either of these movies in a while and it was kind of a revelation to rewatch them. And like, you know, I was surprised by not how much not only by how much I still like these movies, but how I think they've aged and are even better than originally seeing them, you know? So we're going to start off with his first Giallo, which incidentally enough was his directorial debut, which was Short Night of Glass Dolls, which came out in 1971. And Lado had previously been a screenwriter, and he also wrote, I'd say, more on the Hitchcockian side than, you know, maybe Giallo, maybe sort of Giallo, a film called The Designated Victim. He's credited as the writer on this movie as well, but according to Wikipedia, and other websites, it says that the great Giallo scribe Ernesto Gastaldi, who wrote basically all Sergio Martino's Gialli movies, did an uncredited rewrite on there. I can't, you know, prove that this is a true fact or not. There might be some info out there, but from just the research I did, like I couldn't confirm if it's true or not. But there's there's a few Gastaldi touches in this movie, so maybe. It features a stunning score by Ennio Marconi and also very unique and kind of different from him, which we'll talk about a little bit later in this discussion here. The film stars Ingrid Thulin, who was in a bunch of Igmar Bergman movies. I want to make sure I distinct was very distinctive in how I said that she was in things like Wild Strawberries and Hour of the Wolf, plus Visconti's The Damned. Jean Sorel, who we talked about previously with Perversion Story, A Lizard in a Woman's Skin, and A Quiet Place to Kill. Mario Ardorf, who we mentioned on the last episode when we, we were talking about what have they done to your daughters. Plus, he's in a ton of really great Eurocrime movies like Caliber 9. And Bond girl Barbara Bach, who was also in one of my favorite Gialli films, Black Belly of the Tarantula. For those of you who have not seen this movie... Well, you should probably pause the podcast and actually go watch it first. But if you're just going to soldier forth, here's a little plot for you. Greg Moore, an American journalist visiting Prague with his girlfriend, Mira, is found dead. However, he's actually only temporarily paralyzed, but the coroner fails to realize this and proceeds to prepare him for an autopsy. While Moore awaits his doom, he tries to recollect what happened to him. It all starts when his girl disappears. He asks his friend, a local journalist, for help. They discover that this was the late, just the latest in a series of disappearances of young pretty girls in the area. Their investigation leads them to a strange, high-profile private club whose affluent members practice odd ritualistic orgies and bizarre dark rites. Yeah, that's that's pretty spot on, I think. Uh, I guess right out of the gate here. This is very, very different from a lot of Giallo fare. Now, granted, there's been Giallos that have cult elements and all that, but like, and I'll let you kind of comment, comment on this. Like, you know, it's, it does feel a lot different than your typical Giallo, doesn't it? It does. When it, when it starts out with him being paralyzed or see, I, I merely go into and go, wait, is he, is he dead? And is he dead, but he somehow still has, you know, he's like, oh my God, you can't hear me. And he's trying to talk to the person that's going to do the autopsy, stuff like that. And and I'm already like, is this just a weird giallo trope? And and which is it? Is he dead? Is he, is he dead? Is he just paralyzed? 
why is this happening? And I was very, I was very much focused on that. It's a very strong way to start the film, like without a doubt, you know, and uh, the, the, the thing about it is like, you know, like you said, like, is he actually dead? Is he actually paralyzed? Is he having a death dream? Is it like Sunset Boulevard where he's already dead and he's like narrating like what happened to him up until this point kind of thing? And well, obviously, we're going to dissect this here. Pun sort of intended, intended, I guess, truly intended because where this movie goes. But yeah, it's an interesting way to start a giallo, let alone any movie. It's like an instant hook. And, you know, there's some other things that kind of add to it. It's like first the location. It takes place in Prague, which is not very uh, giallo location. Giallos would shoot in like Italy or they would go to England and like that kind of stuff. So it like, you know, being in Eastern Europe gives it a whole different vibe and tone. I saw a review on IMDb that referred this as a Kafka S giallo. And I think that's a pretty spot on. I don't know how how much you've like read Kafka over the years. Yeah, most definitely. It it definitely fits in Kafka. I even thought Twilight Zone. It's definitely a lot a lot more Twilight Zone esque than most other giallos I've seen, I would say. Yeah, I mean it does feel like a in a way, like a really perfect feature length Twilight Zone episode, especially the way it plays out in like the opening premise. And, you know, kind of hitting that Kafka note, it's like, I don't know if you ever read the book, The Trial, or you ever saw the Orson Welles movie, Anthony Perkins, that's based on where it's basically, I don't want to say they're the same because Anthony in the trial, Anthony Perkins's character or whatever the character's name is in the book is being put on trial for a crime. They don't know what they committed, but they're going through the whole process. And the way this is set up, it's like this guy's like, I don't know why I'm paralyzed, why I'm here like trying to go through the process of figuring out. So there's some parallels there. So it's a very different jump because like when you think of Giallo, it's Agatha Christie and Edgar Wallace and things like that instead of like Kafka. When you look at how the film looks overall, it's very stark. It's very cold looking. And, you know, that's a lot of that prog location. The film plays out like Eyes Wide Shut directed by Nicholas Rogue with some like, I'd say Lynchian moments. Do you think that's kind of a fair comparison there, Nick? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Nicholas Rogue uh, because we're for sure going to be talking about him a bunch uh, during the next film. Yeah, but for this one, like the reason why I bring up Rogue is like basically kind of how the structure and like, you know, there's a lot of stream of conscious montage editing like Nicholas Rogue did a lot of. He obviously did, you know, things like bad timing or Eureka which like not saying this is similar, but like a similar editing style was kind of used in this movie where like, cause the way the flashes are him, like trying to put together, like what exactly happened, quick montages of things. And like, it's really well done. And it's like, it's kind of unexpected in a giallo because again, this is very atypical just by a very, very long shot. Kind of back to like the the whole conceit that Jean Sorel's character is still conscious and technically dead, and he's your protagonist. And like, as you said, you're instantly hooked because where's this going? Like, because you don't really know if he's dead, if he's really paralyzed, or if this is just a flashback motif. Well, let me jump in, the, though. I want to I wanna say in relation to me, 
not liking giallos or you know whatever. So when I'm watching this, I'm going, should I care about this or not? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. if I get to the end of this fucking movie and and I never know what was up with why I could hear this guy's thoughts and he was dead or not, I'm going to be pissed. And like, <laughs> so how, so how much should I care about this aspect of the movie as, as it's being used as a vehicle to like show his memories, but, but why? Because that's not a thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Basically because of your aversion to like giallos and like just weird, just weird shit that happens to him. You just thought like this would be just a plot point that doesn't pay off. I was, I was definitely worried about that. Uh, but again, I did really like this one. So the other thing when I think of Jean Sorel in this movie is just like, God damn it. He's unrecognizable in a mustache. Right on. It's a good <laughs> I mean, 70s mustache. I mean, it is a really it, good 70s mustache. But it kind of takes away from because like he's usually like a dashing, good looking character or like a, you know, a suave guy. And it kind of like takes him down to like regular dude. <laughs> it, it It's interesting because like when I think of him and like all those Fulci Giallos and that kind of stuff, like it's kind of a different performance. And I think, you know, I think if he didn't, it, it's going to sound dumb to say this. If he didn't have the mustache that kind of like made him more like every man. And it was just like him and his like normal dashing good looks. I don't think it would have worked. I mean, I could be wrong, but like the fact that like that mustache was enough to kind of alter him to be like, you know, unrecognizable and like completely against type is like, it's, you know, obviously he has a great performance in the movie. I'm not trying to say the mustache fucking carried him through the movie, but like, it's that little, it's that choice. And I think it's an interesting choice. And I think it worked really well. I mean, the, the other thing, which I think may be why you like this movie, even though like there's been giallos that run slow, but illogical, this is a true slow burner. Like this is like of the Thai West and that kind of mold where like, you know, it's just getting there and it's getting there. And like, as things are unraveling and when it finally starts cooking, it's like, Oh shit, it's getting fucking crazy. And I think that's a true slow burn in the real sense and not just because like it's slowly plotted and like uh, murder here, uh, people talking for 10 minutes, you know, that kind of (laughs) stuff. Yeah. And I think the slow burn aspect, because both of these movies are a bit of a slow burn, like it helps build the sense of dread because like as it unfolds and you get more of those montages and memories and like flashbacks and all that stuff while the on the other side of it is like, he's getting prepped to be done as an autopsy in front of a bunch of people. It's like, it builds that dread and that tension. Cause it's like, is he going to wake up and not get fucking cut up? You know, mm-hmm. or on the other side, does it not pay off? And he's just like, this is all bullshit. None of it's real or it's the dream or whatever. All the things you fucking hate about certain giallos, you know, the other thing is it definitely hangs around that 70s paranoia thriller thing. Like, you know, I just I might be clouded because I just recently watched Parallax View again. And, you know, like there's definitely a conspiracy angle, especially when you start looking into like there's been other girls that have been murdered and it could be tied together and you get the secret club and all that kind of stuff like, you know, Illuminati or going back to like 
what have you done to our daughters? Like the, uh, you know, the fucking Jeffrey Epstein type crowd or whatever. Like, what is this called? What is this group? So like as a seventies paranoia thriller, I think it works on that level too. A lot of giallos don't delve into like paranoia. Like it's all about tension, fear and that kind of stuff. And this is like definitely very conspiracy heavy. If that makes sense. Most definitely. It's a great payoff at the end. Yeah, I actually can't wait to talk about the ending, but we got we got a little bit to get there. Uh, I also want to talk about in that opening when like they find the body, like the two characters at the beginning, the janitor dude and the guy with no legs. Really great characters, like really tone setting in a way. I'm sorry, but when the guy came (laughs) when the guy came out with no legs and he's like on that, uh, He's on like a we- kind of a, like a wheeled platform or something. Mm-hmm. We're just like, oh, fucking Giallos, man. <laughs> God damn it, Giallos. You know, just like only the- this guy would only be the way he comes cruising. I don't know. I mean, I'm not trying to be insensitive. The- just the way he comes cruising up. I'm like, God damn it, Giallos. You know, <laughs> am I wrong? No, it's just like, like Giallo- <laughs> Giallos, like they're weird, like working class characters and like, but like, it's just this weird option. Of like you have this grumpy ass fucking janitor, and then like the dude, the dude with no legs that rolls up, and he's like, "I didn't kill the guy. I just fucking found him. I guess we got to call someone to take care of it." Like, yeah, it, it it's it's kind of unique because like obviously you it helps kick off the the forward motion of the movie, but it's just like it's a really interesting way to start, it, especially with like two like you know, I think there's been other giallos or other movies where like some inconsequential like janitor or lawn keeper or whatever you want to call him, finds a body but you throw in that other guy and it's just like and it's not to be insensitive it just gives an extra edge to like something weird going on like in the movie in general mm-hmm. it, it it kind of plays to that david lynch aspect where like david lynch would have like just a weird person you know character mm-hmm. show up just to kind of augment like you're about to go on a weird ride absolutely I mean, I could be just reading too much into it, but like, you know, I think I think it just like it sets a tone and it sets it really early on. Uh, the other thing is like Barbara Bach, who's, inc- you know, incredible with what little screen time she has in the movie, like, but she's essentially the Hitchcockian MacGuffin of the story. And if you're not familiar with, you know, Hitchcock terminology, the MacGuffin is basically the thing that the characters in the movie care about but it doesn't really matter to the audience. It's the thing that the characters do things for, but at the end of the day, the audience, it doesn't matter to the audience. It can be anything, which, you know, kind of a little bit of a waste for her, but like, it's a good MacGuffin because it's kind of like driving his obsession. Like what happened to my girlfriend? What is going on here? And it kind of reminded me of in, obviously this film way predates what I'm bringing up here, but there's certain plot points in under the silver Lake. I don't know if you ever seen that movie, but there there's certain parallels to under the silver Lake that I was picking up on this rewatch. Cause obviously I've seen under the silver Lake a lot more recently than this movie. And it could also be because of silver lakes, like attempts of eyes wide shutting. So maybe that's part of it, but like the whole, if you haven't seen Under the Silver Lake, the guy's trying to find this girl that he kind of almost hooked up with, but didn't, who then disappears. So he goes like to try to figure out and kind of goes on like a, you know, amateur sleuthing and kind of finds a like a seedy underbelly world of L.A. 
sort of like in this movie, this guy's finding a seedy underbelly of Prague, sort of like Tom Cruise and Eyes Wide Shut, finding an underbelly of rich weirdos that have sex orgies, you know. A lot of parallels. Might make for an interesting triple feature, I don't know. Now, Sorrel teams up with Ardolf and Thulin's character to help figure out what's going on. And he learns there's been, you know, the other young girls have disappeared besides his girlfriend. So that gives like this narrative. Is it like a, you know, kind of a giallo motif is someone knocking off pretty young girls in Prague kind of thing. But it never gets there, which is a kind of a point we should mention is that this movie's not very graphically violent, even by like early giallo standards. Now, was that a turn on or turn off for you for this movie? I cared enough about all the other elements that that, that really didn't bother me. Okay. I mean, because like that, there's a lot of reviews that complain about the lack of bloodletting and like that kind of stuff. But like, I don't think it needs it because like, I think the like the mystery elements and how they play out are so fucking good in this movie that like, you don't even miss like the like giallo kills you know the signature thing of the genre i i cared so much about this guy communicating while potentially dead or paralyzed i cared so much about that that the like other people being murdered or whatever else like didn't i didn't need it yeah and i mean there's not to say that people don't die in this movie obviously i think the mystery elements really carry it, and obviously the big mystery of like the dude on the slab who the fuck? Well, you know who he is, but like, how'd he get there? Which is like the other thing that carries that whole entire narrative the whole time. And I'm kind of thinking of like when the movie starts kind of picking up and there's a certain scene that I always flag because it's a, he's going to meet this old guy at a train station that has some information and he sees the guy walking up and then someone runs up behind the old guy, grabs him by the legs and like tosses him over the side and you get a a decent dummy drop in there. But then, like, he goes and runs and finds the old guy, like, laying on the ground, dying. And he's like, what happened? Who are they? You know, and the guy just offers, like, these cryptic words. They don't fly. Which is some fucking straight up David Lynch shit right there. True. <laughs> I mean, I I don't. I guess they kind of, like, tie it back together but like really it's just like what the fuck does they don't fly mean because that dude just flew off a fucking like platform onto the ground near a train (laughs) all right that's the other impressive thing about this dummy drop because like it happens as the train is leaving so like that's Mm -hmm. timing i mean it i'm sure they didn't do multiple takes and they just like whatever however the dummy fell is how the dummy fell but like that's production value right there it's perfectly right behind the train. Yeah, it, it's so good. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, I, I like that we're focusing on the dummy drop in a movie that gets, starts getting really, really dark from here on out. You know, I mean, the movie's kind of dark in general, but like, you know, after that scene where like he really is trying to start dive into this stuff and like as you're going, like as you're cross cutting between like the flashbacks, false memories, real memories, dream, whatever it ends up being is that like the tensions ratchet up because they're getting ready to cut into him for an autopsy. And this kind of leads into like the climax of the movie, which is probably the biggest similarities or parallel to Idols Wide Shut, which is the Club 99 stuff. Because that's the club where like all this 
is supposed to be tied into. And it's kind of funny because Club 99 sounds like some goth club that would be out here, you know. You know, Club 99 is not something I would think someone in, what is, what is this from, 71 or something? Yeah. I mean, maybe Prague was ver- very big and like maybe there was proto-industrial that it, like people went to this club for. Because like when I think Club 99, <laughs> especially when it's spelled with a K, I think he's going to walk in and like fucking ministries playing or some shit. Yeah. Or maybe I'm just stretching for a fucking joke. I don't know. But, you know, once he the thing is, once Sorrell actually gets in that club, that's where it really ratchets up. And that's when you finally get that whole cult reveal, which is kind of hinted and alluded to. And, you know, this is where I feel like if Gastaldi actually had a hand in this, this might be here because, like, there's a lot of shades of all the colors of the dark here. Yeah kind of even to the, like the ritualistic sex or, you know, sacrifice or whatever's all going now. The way it's presented is interesting because it's all very like hallucinatory and you don't know if he's like drugged or like, this is just like a something that he's just making up as he's seeing. But, you know, it also kind of harkens back to what we were talking about in daughters on the last episode where it's like the elite are controlling shit again, except this time it's like Illuminati, a cult level. You know what I mean? So it, it it's a nice, it's a, it's a twist that you kind of see is coming just because like, it's, they talk about the whole movie, but like, it's kind of interesting that it actually pays off. And then he pays the price for going there. You know, mm-hmm. we got too close to the fire. Yeah. When you get too close to the fire, you get fucking burned, which, what, which is what happened to Sorrell, because this is when you finally find out what happened to him. And your whole thing, like, is this just some bullshit, like, plot point that's not going to pay off? It finally pays off because they basically, you find out he's been hypnotized by this cult. And the only way he can awake from this is if, is once he's buried in the ground. Which means, like, no one's putting a body straight into the ground. You're going to get some kind of embalming, autopsy, that kind of thing. And... That's kind of where the movie heads at the end is that he's on that slab and he realizes like he has to do something. And this is a really great, like kind of, you said twilight zone. I think this is a really good twilight zone moment where like he's trying to wake himself up and his hand starts moving mm-hmm. and there's, the, but no one can see it. Cause the hand that's moving is like faced away from like, I guess where they were doing this autopsy was like a medical school type of thing. So there's a bunch of people like surrounded, like looking down at it and where and his, and his hand starts moving, but like no one in the crowd could see it, but the guy that's going to do the autopsy can. And then you'd notice the guy doing the autopsy is part of the cult. And all those dudes from the cult are s- sitting up in the bleachers watching this shit go down. So the first thing they do as he's trying to wake up and get out is they take a little blade, stab him right in the heart kill him fucking i don't even think twilight zone got that bleak you know right i mean the film just ends with like fulham's character like screaming and it just freeze frames like i don't know if she consciously or unconsciously realized what happened like that he was alive and trying to fight all the way through that movie and it's like there's no hope you're just done dude Yep, that's how I read it. The, I, I thought she saw his hand move, and uh, and and but it was too late. Yeah, 
I mean, the way it's shot is like, it kind of feels like, does she see it? Does she not see it? Is she complicit in letting this happen? Does she feel guilty after it happens? Like, this movie has more, it leaves you with more questions than answers at the end. Like, obviously, the original conceit of him being on the morgue slab, is he dead or alive? Obviously, he was alive. He was hypnotized. And then he goes through all that to only become a body on a morgue slab. I mean, it's it's really a gut punch of a movie. And it's just like knowing the ending and rewatching it, it still hit pretty hard. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm actually this is one I'm uh, now now that <laughs> now that I've finished it and got, you know, got all my answers and, and know what the film was about. Now I'm ready to actually rewatch it. You know, now that I can kind of, you know, watch it from a different angle, see things that I may have missed because I gave too much of a shit about him. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, but it's a movie that can plays. It will play out differently every time you watch it, because there's going to be something else that's going to hook you in. It's going to be like, are there weird clues that set things up the whole entire flashbacks or like that kind of stuff? Because like it's it's an interesting movie that you can focus on different things and get something out of it that's completely different each viewing which is a amazing thing for a movie to do obviously if people were looking for kind of a comfort repeat rewatch type thing this is not the movie for that but like i love this movie because like it dares to go pretty big especially for a giallo which i guess we should talk about since a lot of people there's a mixed school on this like is it a giallo is it not a giallo kind of thing and I think there's enough of a mystery element in kind of like not exactly on the nose giallo things, but I think there's enough things happening in the movie. The mystery narrative, a lot of the actors have been in giallos before, you know, the way it kind of plays out the cult aspect, even though like giallos didn't have the market corner on like cults and movies, obviously it's all coming from the Rosemary's baby end of the spectrum. But like, I think there's just enough things in there, but it, the way it's presented is like, it's very unique and like no one's made another Giallo even close to this. You know it. I mean, I, I hadn't rewatched this movie in probably, I don't know how many years and I always liked it. And, you know, I, I always like kind of ranked who saw or die a little bit ahead of it. But upon rewatching both of these, I kind of mark them both pretty even now. Like, I think they're both top tier giallos for completely different reasons. I don't know. Final thoughts on this, Nick? Yeah, it's great. I, th- I think I also like who saw her die just a little more, but you know, we'll talk about that. Um, yeah, this one, this one's great, man. Maybe it's not a giallo. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that's the argument on my side. Then it's not a giallo. I really liked it. No, but this, <laughs> this, <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, it's great. I, I, if, if you're a Giallo fan, absolutely search this one out. Yeah. One last thing I want to talk about before we move off this film is the Enyer Marconi score, which is really different for what he was doing during this era. The, what does his score reminded me of in this movie was kind of like what Howard Shore was doing for David Cronenberg when they started working together. I'm thinking like the brood and scanners era. Like just something in like the kind of dark orchestral tone to it. Like it doesn't, it's not like a lot of the Giallo scores, which Morricone was making at a time were really psychedelic 
or like, you know, it's not like his spaghetti Western scores. Like I can't, I'm sure he's done other scores that are probably in this vein, but like re rewatching and listening to that score. like, it's com- it's completely unique and atypical to anything I can think of off the top of my head that he's done. Like so much so that like, I didn't remember that he did the score to it. And then his name popped up. I was like, Oh shit, I guess he did do the score to it. And then it's like listening to it. It's like, but did he? Because it's just so different. Like, you know, there's certain more Coney quirks and cues that like kind of pop up throughout like his, you know, discography and like, there's a few here, but like it, he doesn't really lean on it. It's a completely original score, but we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we return, we're going to talk more about Aldo Lado's Giallo's here on the Cinematic Void podcast. That is not sufficient proof when you say the girl was wearing nothing when she left. And yet I've known it to happen that someone suddenly decides to move out. They leave. There's no warning and no argument. Let me say this to you. They'd better because I'll write a story and blast every last one of you for murder. Why did you say murder? And the part that beats me is how the hell you could care for someone like her. You know that both you and the girl took drugs. You're lucky. She's not in a morgue with a broken neck. Who did it? Do you know him? They don't fly. They don't let them fly. JMB Scotch Whiskey, dove conta il carattere. Welcome back. We've been talking about the Giallo films of Aldo Lado here on the Cinematic Void podcast. Up next is, you know, his second Giallo, as well as the second film that he directed. It stars George Lazenby, who is a former James Bond. We had a former Bond girl in the previous movie. Now we have a former James Bond. Anita Strindberg, who is in a bunch of Sergio Martino Gialli, including... Cases of Scorpion's Tale and Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key, as well as Lucio Fulci's A Lizard in a Women's Skin. It also stars Nicolette Elmi, who is probably one of the most quintessential Italian children actors because, you know, she's a very you've seen her a lot of stuff. She's in Deep Red, A Bay of Blood, and she was also had her own starring vehicle, The Night Child, which was directed by. Massimo Dalamano, who we talked about a lot on the last episode. This film, actually, did I even say what this film is? I did not. The film we are talking about is Who Saw Her Die from 1972. The film was written by Francesco Brilli, who incidentally enough directed A Perfume of the Lady in Black, which we just screened in theater, and was co-written by his perfume co-writer Massimo Davivac, as well as Adelato, who did some think it said like he contributed to the screenplay whatever that means i don't know if he just took a screenplay and did a little bit of a rewrite the film once again has a very amazing and dare i say unique score by ennio marconi much different than his previous score for lato and we'll talk at length about that a little bit later and for those of you who have not seen the movie here's a little plot for you between a four-year gap and the murder of a young girl, the daughter of a well-known sculptor is discovered dead, and her parents conduct an investigation. 
only to discover they are much out of their depth. And right off the bat, I think this is apparent to both of us and anyone who's seen these movies, you know, this is more of a classic Giallo style compared to glass dolls. Would you agree? Most definitely. It's got a few of the, the, the old Giallo tropes. Yeah, I mean, this one does have a black love killer, which kind of a unique flip on it because it's a black love killer that's wearing like, I want to say black woven gloves, which is a little off the beaten path. But, you know, even though this is more of a typical giallo, I think this is another atypical giallo, like on the surface. Very giallo like, but it does a lot of things that giallos don't normally do or would do. And. For one, again, it's another slow burner and not in that giallo funky plotting kind of way. Like everything that's set up is meant to be paid off, you know, and Lado basically, you know, pushes to build tension and atmosphere the whole time. Let's talk about that opening murder, which takes place in France in the snow, which is pretty goddamn unique for a giallo because when you think of giallos, do you think of snow? Nope. I don't think of skiing, any of this, sledding, not a giallo. No, and like that's why like that opening is so good because it's just like you you feel like you're out of your element already, which is like you're in a locale that isn't typically giallo country and there's fucking snow and you have that murder and you get blood in the snow and all that stuff. It's really, really well done. But after that, the film was shot and takes place in Venice, which is a very effective location for a giallo or a giallo adjacent film, which we're going to get into in a little bit. Another thing I've noticed that Lado has did in both these movies is that he gave his leading men mustaches. George Lazenby, who again, wasn't, he was James Bond. James Bond doesn't have a fucking mustache. And this movie, he's got a mustache. And I had read somewhere that apparently he lost like 30 pounds to play this role. I don't know why. It doesn't seem like a real method thing to have to do. But like, he did it. And again, he looks unrecognizable, just like Jean Sorel looked unrecognizable. He only played Bond once, which was on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which... And that was kind of a tongue twister for me to say. I actually had to look up how the proper title is because I had like eight different versions of it that we have since cut out that is nowhere near what this actual title is. But yeah, he played James Bond in that. But like, again, Lado takes like what you consider like a dashing leading man, slaps a mustache on him, changes him, makes him an everyman. And it's. It works again for this movie, and I think Lazenby gives a really great performance like throughout, even though it should be mentioned in at least the English dub version. It's that that's not his own voice. Someone else dubbed him in. I don't know if he didn't come back for his own looping or whatever the issue was, but like that is not his voice. And obviously he didn't dub himself in like the Italian version or any other language. But performance wise, he's fucking terrific in it. And, you know, the way the movie works and it's giallo-ness, you get some close calls early on, like his daughter, who's like, there's a near murder scene when she's going to get ice cream in that um, the Black Glove Killer's coming. And every time the Black Glove Killer comes, they have a soundtrack, which I think we should talk about. I, I think we were originally going to save the Morricone stuff until later, but I think it's a good point to bring it out, which is that kid's chorus thing he does throughout the movie the 
la 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 thing. And if you haven't heard that score or haven't seen the movie, check that out. Like it's brilliant because it's just like, it becomes very hypnotic. And you were talking about the score a little bit before we started recording. Yeah. It's, it has like a weird echo effect on it that makes it extra creepy. Like I, I feel like I've heard uh, these kind of child chorus parts in other giallos, but for some reason in this one, again, with the echo, it just makes it extra creepy the way it kind of trails off in the end. It makes it a little psychedelic. And uh, what, so when I, when I was watching it, it made me curious, like what uh, was there a trend in giallos as far as the, the soundtrack goes where there was this like child's chorus or, or, or is this special? Now I, I can't, think of the other movies he's done in it, but Morricone has definitely done child choruses before in other movies. I think he's even used them in a few spaghetti Westerns at times. And I think it just depends on the movie, but like it's, I don't think he's done it quite like this. And we were talking about this earlier, like many years ago, I directed a fake Giallo Christmas trailer that you worked on. And I think I have a small role in and actually did a little music for, but there's a cue in the movie that, I got my friend Tara, who does I Speak Machines, who just did the score to Travis Stevenson's um, Jacob's Wife. And I, I, sh- I DP'd a film that her and her husband, who are collectively I Speak Machines, had made. So I called in a favor for her to do a little piece of music for my Giallo trailer. And she's like, well, what kind of vibe you want? And I sent her the fucking main cue for Who Saw, who saw Her Die. And... That's what she emulated to, I don't want to say to a T, but like it's the same vibe without being exactly the same. If that makes sense. I mean, the thing about this score is like like all the great Morricone scores is that he comes up with a couple cues that just make it stand out. And like, I know there's probably a certain segment of people that like Giallo's or, you know, genre movies probably hate this kind of score because they do play it a fucking lot in this movie. But to me, I think every time they do it, it's a it's really effective. So, you know, that Morricone score is just amazing. And the way he uses it, like Lado uses it, is just really, really well done. And, you know, we talked about like that opening or not the opening, but that near murder scene with the Lazenby's daughter is going to get the ice cream. And like it almost happens and the music stops the second like he steps out in the killer like diverts directions so they don't get caught but then later when the killer does get the girl like it's actually i don't want to say cross cut but it's kind of like well you're gonna probably be happy i bring this up because i know you're a fan of this movie like i was thinking re-watching this now i was thinking of antichrist mm-hmm. you know there's that scene in antichrist where they're having sex and the baby like falls out the window or whatever yeah laz yeah lazenby goes and hooks up with like not his wife because his wife or is a strange or divorced. I not really clear what the hell their relationship is in this movie. I mean, it might be clear and I just might be misremembering, but like he's hooking up with some other lady that he doesn't want his daughter. know he's hooking up with. So she's playing outside with a bunch of other kids when the killer gets her. So rewatching this and having since seen antichrist, it's like, that's kind of the same thing. It's like, you're basically having sex, allowing your child to die. Mm-hmm. And it's a really it's kind of a dark twist because then it just builds this whole guilt complex, which is throughout this whole entire movie. And then his wife 
finally shows up and it's Anita Strindberg. And like, this is, this is when we're going to really talk about more Nicholas Rogue here, because there's a scene where like Strindberg and Lazaby, who are estranged, divorced, whatever, hook up because their daughter's the dead. And it's reminiscent of a scene in a movie that came out a year later, which is Don't Look Now. So it's kind of hard not to compare and contrast because both these movies have grief sex scenes, you know. Mm-hmm. There's that. There's even a uh, there's a scene where um, where he falls and he's kind of hanging from this rafter. And there's a you know, there's, of course, the the more famous scene from Don't Look Now where he's on the scaffolding and it falls and he's having to he's like swinging for his life. I mean, he's not up there as long in in this one but uh i don't know i i found that to be a kind of a similarity there i don't know there's i mean there's there are plenty i mean venice they're both shot both take place in venice i mean even down to like donald sutherland's job and don't look now he's a architect and lazenby's a sculptor i mean obviously those aren't the same things but it involves art and building and that kind of stuff and it makes you question, like, did Nicholas Rogue see this movie before making Don't Look Now? I know we talked about this when we did Don't Look Now in the Giallo adjacent episode, but we didn't go into too much depth on it because I think neither of us had. Well, you had never seen it. And I hadn't watched it in a while. Who saw or die? And watching it now, it's just like, obviously, there's differences in this movie, but like. It's there's definitely like. There's a through line there, and it's like, did Rogue see it? Did someone on the production see it? Because, like, I don't know. Or is it just coincidence? Is it a giallo coincidence that these movies have very similar themes, vibes, and all that? It's, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't buy it. Don't buy it? <laughs> you think Rogue saw it? I, I don't know. It's like, uh, it's like Home Alone and, uh, What's what's that uh, French one? Oh, Dial Code Santa Claus. Yeah. Yeah. They came out around the same time, right? Yeah. And like, I think it was like a year apart. So it's like, you know, depending when the production was this and that, like, is it possible? But I mean, like, you know, don't look now as a Giallo Jason film that takes place in Venice. And Who Saw Her Die is a Giallo film that takes place in Venice that was shot a year before. And like, I don't know. I mean, most of the discussion about like the inspiration, all that comes from like, you know, people online. But I guess we'll never really know the the truth behind it. But like, I do think it's interesting. And like, you know, obviously Don't Look Now has things that this movie doesn't have, like red raincoat girls, dwarfs, that kind of stuff. And it goes in a little bit different direction. And some of that like fragmented imagery that's in short night of glass dolls is more in don't look now whereas in who saw or die doesn't really have that stuff which is another i think it's a good time to like now that we've done the don't look now comparison thing is the compare and contrast like aldo lado's style between these two movies and you know if you didn't know better you might think completely different director made this even with the score being made by the same person, the, the scores are so different. So yeah, I, I would definitely think they were, this was made by a completely different team. And, and of course it's not. 
and it's not to say that like you know it i guess what the thing i'm saying it's like lado is a bit of a chameleon and it's like you know you go a very stark style that's very like you would think would be a signature style that you would carry your next movie and you completely flip the script and again like i said this is more classically giallo than the previous one but he does there's there's a few traits that carry through them both but like stylistically they're i'd say very very far apart you know now this movie has probably my favorite scene that involves giving exposition to the audience which is that ping pong scene where like Lazenby goes and finds the guy that lives on the property of where the the first girl was murdered and they play ping pong and obviously it doesn't matter what they're doing it's an exposition scene to try to get information but like I give it credit for being ping pong because like who the fuck is like, you know what this movie needs a ping pong scene. And it, it kind of makes like the exposition dump entertaining because when you watch a lot of giallos, the way they do is just like someone sitting at a bar, someone sitting outside, you know, someone walks up. It's like, Oh, let me give you all this information on a park bench kind of thing. Like it's a really unique choice. I don't know where it came from, but like, God damn it, I like it. <laughs> Similar to Glass Dolls, this movie's murder sequences aren't really gory. They're pretty restrained. There's a little more blood in this one than, you know, Glass Dolls. But the one murder I think is the best on-screen murder is the the guy that owns all the birds. They get stabbed with the scissors. And, you know, the killer stabs them and then lets all the birds out. And it's like, man, that's a big fuck you at the end. It's like, killed you and now all your birds are out suck on that <laughs> i mean that's probably the goriest murder in the movie and it's like literally just a pair of scissors getting stabbed in someone's like chest and stomach area but like the the murders are still pretty good there's definitely like the strangulation one and that kind of stuff but again very restrained which might be the one through line between glass dolls and this movie is that the murders aren't that graphic but they're still impactful. Now, this is the second movie that we've talked about for January Giallo that features a fake priest. However, unlike the previous fake priest, which was in Solange, this one's more of a pivotal character because they actually think he's a fucking priest and he's out and about. He's not like a red herring, like, oh, we're looking for a bearded priest. This guy's in the forefront, all that. So when you get the reveal of him basically being in drag, with those gloves and stuff. And they basically what happens to the ending is like that. This is why I really love this movie. And it's for this superficial reason. You get a fucking firewalk into a dummy drop. Truly one of the best dummy drops I've ever seen. Actually, it is really good. And like the fact that like your lead in is firewalk dummy mm-hmm. drop chef's kiss. <laughs> like it, the only other this, there's this Scooby Doo, Scooby Doo, pull the mask off, reveal it's the priest. I would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for you kids. To flaming, to falling out the window, perfection. It is like there, the the flaming dummy drop is such a rarity. Like there's obviously one in X Ray which I love, but like this one, I, no disrespect to X Ray, which is one of my favorite like slashers. This is a I this is a I think it's a top shelf dummy drop. It's much better than one in X-ray and like it's a 
it's a fitting conclusion. And I guess this is also where like Glass Dolls and Who Saw Her Die differs that you get some closure out of it. But is it really closure? Because like their kid's dead, but they kind of like, oh, I guess we're back together. Happy. But because we stopped the killer. I guess that's a kind of a positive resolution. I mean, it's, it I mean, it, even, be... it tells you his motive, you know, yeah. whether it's, you know, it's there's it's just a good payoff there at the end. It's a good payoff. I do think it's like when you think a little too much about it, when like they go gallivanting off like, yeah, everything's fine now. We stopped the killer. And it's like your daughter's still fucking dead, guys. <laughs> Speaking of that, like, you know, child murder in Giallo while there was kind of a rare thing and like. There's not many that really tackled this really hard. Like the only one I can off the top of my head just think of is Lucio Fulci's Don't Torture Duckling, which also had like the Catholic priest angle in there as well. And it's kind of interesting, like how often Giallo's question or mock or use some form of Catholicism as like the villain, even if it's just like a it's not a real priest, but hiding behind Catholicism to do evil stuff kind of thing. So this movie has both of those things. And I don't know. It's that the child murder is actually really striking. It's really sad. And the reason why I'm bringing it up now is because like how much that ending is like a 180 from like all that in a way, because it's, it's kind of a uplifting jet setting ending more like fun, loving giallo endings, but it feel, but it feels earned. I don't know if you feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's t- I mean, totally right. Uh, just a great payoff with the villain and then just happiness. It's happiness. Over. <laughs> Thank God it's over. I mean, I maybe I'm just skewed by the fact that they had the priest or the fake priest on fire into a dummy drop. Like, you know, that maybe that's clouding my vision. Maybe, I, maybe I'm reading, maybe I'm reading it as they're very more, jovial as they're like at the end of the film when then they maybe should be it's also it's funny they're yelling they're actually yelling the ending of the film to them as they're sailing away and they probably can't hear them yeah <laughs> they probably can't it's, hear them at all it's like <laughs> i think the last line of the movie is like and the, he was not really a priest like, yeah. it's like whatever we're on our fucking boat we're we're out of here <laughs> I I mean, yeah, it's th- this is probably definitely drifting more into like Giallo logic with that. But like, you know, it it doesn't skew from the fact that I think this is a really done, really well done thriller, really well yeah. constructed, excellent direction. All the shot like the cinematography is like really, really great. And of course, that and your Marconi score, it's it's top shelf. Like at the end of the day, like. I came in liking this movie slightly more and my opinion didn't change. I still like this movie a lot. Short night of glass dolls. I ended up liking almost as equal just because of how different they are from each other. Oh man. I have to mention uh, my favorite scene. Uh, This, this there's a, there's a scene where um, there's like, you think there's a glove killer in the apartment and it's like a total joke. It's awesome. (laughs) I mean, I, uh, I think, you know, it's, it I was think, like the cleaner or whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. assuming everybody that's listening to this has watched this. But, you know, this is just a great joke. It's just like, all right. 
Oh right. yeah, that that scene. Don't, that scene I, is. Gr- don't don't think you're better than this movie. This movie knows knows exactly what it is. Exactly. Yeah. Like I, I, you know, that this is probably a good time to talk about our final thoughts on Aldo in general. It's like I feel like kind of like Dalamano. He's kind of underrated when he's probably made like who saw or dies at least a top ten Giallo, mm-hmm. without question. I don't think either of us are gonna have an argument about that or anyone that like loves these kind of movies gonna have an argument about that i i think he's kind of underrated and it's like i kind of wish he made more but at the same time it's like if he had made more would they been as good because where else could he gone with it like you did the the most unusual atypical giallo possible which might take it to the point to some people that's not even a giallo and then you do one that's clearly in that argento formula the black love killer stuff and you subvert it and do something completely different within that. Where do you go from there? So maybe it's better off. He didn't make one or another Giallo. I should say, I highly recommend both of these films. I also highly recommend the night train murders, which we were going to originally talk about, but again, I kind of felt like it's more on the um, last house on the left, like knockoff train. I guess it's a train movie. It's on a train trend. Yeah, whatever. I don't know. We'll we'll talk we'll we'll talk about though those kind of movies at some point later this year or at some point. I don't want to say later this year because I don't want then we have to do it if I say it. At some point we will talk <laughs> about it. It may be this year. It might not be this year, but at some point we'll talk about Last House on the Left movies. <laughs> One day we'll do our train episode. Yeah, we'll, we'll just do all fucking train movies. We're going to take one last commercial break here, but when we return, it's going to be read, watch, and listen here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. The quiet moments belong to J and B. The Scotch whiskey, so rare, it whispers. Welcome back. It's now time for... On the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to since the last time we recorded a podcast. It's It's been a couple weeks, Nick. What have you been reading, watching, and or listening to? All right. For reading, I've still been making my way through this book, Tampa, by Alyssa Nutting. I talked about it on the last podcast, and it is a fictional book about a woman in her 20s who becomes a middle school teacher, uh, kind of in order to have sex with middle school children. Um <laughs> So that's a strange book, but yeah, that's, that's what I'm reading right now. And, uh, and I also just got, uh, at over at secret secret headquarters over in Silver Lake, I picked up, uh, a graphic novel called project MK ultra sex drugs and the CIA. Does it mention Ed- Edgewood arsenal in there? Uh, well, I have, I haven't actually read this yet, but I've just, ah. I'm just jumping, in, just jumping into it. But, uh, yeah, it looks super sick. So I'm I'm excited to, to rip through that. Because you because you know like where we were kind of near where we both grew up, like one of the army bases was the home of like all that LSD testing. Oh, I think you've told me about this before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll we'll just we'll put a pin on this so when you actually read it, we can talk about that. Not that cool, anyone yeah, else sure. needs. 
Not that anyone else needs to care about it, but like maybe you want to know about LSD testing. Um, that, that shit's interesting, man. All right. So for watch, I just got two uh, Criterion Blu-rays of uh, The Cranes Are Flying and Letter Never Sent. Uh, both are from the 50s. Uh, post-Stalin Soviet Union films. I guess The Cranes Are Flying is a little more well-known, but both of these films are incredible. Um, Cranes Are Flying was first, um, and it's the... uh, I don't know the the cinematographer's name, but it's the same director and cinematographer for both of these films. And they're just... They're beautiful and incredible. And uh, I I feel like they're must-sees if you love film in general fuck they're it i mean i was i was blown away um, i saw cranes are flying actually uh last sunday um at the um the american cinematheque at uh los Feliz three uh for the uh sunday print edition uh where they show black and white films in 35 millimeter um so i got to see the cranes are flying uh by the time this episode comes out this will have already happened but they are doing a uh an encore screening on the 15th and I'm probably going to go to that as well. <laughs> uh, and even though I own the Blu-ray, I think I have to go see it again in 35 millimeter uh, while I have the opportunity. Um, so yeah, highly recommended both those films. Uh, and then I also just watched this film, Jim, <laughs> that, uh, that you will hate for sure. Uh, the moment of truth. And it, it is a uh, criterion title as well by Francesco Rossi, um, an Italian filmmaker, I believe. And it is a film about bullfighting. Um, and even despite being uh, from like 19, from 65, um, it has that kind of, you know, underdog sports story arc of like, you know, Rocky and even Raging Bull and something like that, where it's just the underdog, whatever. Um, and again, it's about bullfighting. Uh, it's the star of the film is an actual bullfighter, and all the bullfighting scenes in the movie are real. Um, so it shows like it's it's one of the goriest films I've ever seen. Um, but all of that gore is bulls. Um, See, I would only watch it if the bulls would win. <laughs> I I don't want to I don't want to spoil the film. Um, but yeah, I think it's, you know, in a, in like a historical aspect, I think it's a great film and, uh, it, it does not ever, it doesn't at all. And, and from like some of the reviews I've read, people, people really criticize this film, uh, due to the fact that it's very firmly neutral. It, it casts no opinion. You know, people are mad. It doesn't, it doesn't condemn it at all, but you know, if that sounds like it's your thing, I mean, it's a gr- it's a great, beautiful film, uh, but yeah, it's it's rough, it's rough, man. I mean, in Spain, there's like this cultural like significance to bullfighting and all that. Like, it, I think it's almost like on a spiritual level. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean I like or agree with it, but you know, whatever. Yeah, not some movies aren't made for me. You don't like. There you go. You, you don't like certain giallos. I don't like movies where people fucking murder bulls. Indeed. And uh, last night I watched Army of Shadows by, is it Jean, Jean-Pierre Melville? Is that, that is, is correct. It Jean, is it Jean-Pierre? Yeah, um, Jean-Pierre. Yeah. A uh, 
beautiful slow film. But if you but if you stick in a half ass murder mystery, it's like I can't fuck with this slow movie. <laughs> I can't do I can't do with this shit. Yeah. But like an art house <laughs> fucking French movie, like oh four or five fucking stars. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. But yeah, uh, goddamn, it's pow- a powerful film <laughs> with no Scooby Doo mystery. <laughs> anyway. Uh, listen, uh, I have been listening to a lot of like codeine and karate and like kind of slow music lately. Have you, you ever been to uh codeine white birch? Never really listened to codeine. Oh man. It's, uh, I guess, I don't know if it was called this at the time, but of course, you know, journalists or someone came up with the term slow core and, uh, that's kind of. I don't. I don't like it. <laughs> you, don't, you don't like the terms. Would you prefer Quaalude core? But yeah, I've been I've been listening to just like some slower indie rock stuff from the '90s, and I remember that there was a band called Low that was kind of always in that scene, and I never really checked them out or never got into it. But so I, I had checked out their latest two records. Um, there's one from last year called Hey What, and the one before it is called Double Negative. Um, and they're both like, I don't know. It's just like weird ass slow indie rock with, uh, like male and vocal harmonies kind of throughout the whole songs. But the music, which I assume is just like guitar based synth, there's no drums and it's just like, it's just produced so that all the instruments just sound like noise, like static. And it's just fucking like, it's a weird. It's it's almost like it's a weird ass noise record with vocals. I don't know. I'm I've so I've gotten like super into. It. I just like found these records and I got super into. I've just been listening to them over and over. <laughs> just like super weird. It's cool. Like kind of orchestral vocals over just like weird sort of melodic noise. Now you said low, not slow. There's not a band called Slow. No, it's low. L O W. So it's been around forever since like the early nineties. Yeah, because I haven't listened to Low in like fuck, I can't even think about it. Like, you know, they they were always kind of like very quiet. They also had the trade-off male and female like vocals or harmonies and stuff like that. There's a story I read about them many years ago. They played South by Southwest, like upstairs, and they were so quiet that the death metal band playing below them, like a different (laughs) stage, was like drowning them out kind of thing yeah actually <laughs> i mean but I, I i do have a few low records i haven't listened in a while but the my, one of my favorite things they did they did there they did there was an in the fish tank series i don't know if, if you remember that where it was like two artists would collaborate together they did one with the band the dirty three which i think warren mm-hmm. ellis who plays with nick cave is in and it's really good and they do a cover of neil young's down by the river and it's like way way like it's way more it's i don't want to say it's way more emotional but it strikes a different kind of emotion with it it kind of like flips the song in a way because you know that neil young song down by the river i shot my baby and like it kind of it feels like it's coming from the as we talk about out of body experiences or people talking about from being dead or whatever 
that kind of vibe. It kind of flips mm-hmm. the song. So I uh, sorry, I'm hijacking your low thread no. here. Oh, all good. But yeah, I, I had never really heard any of that early stuff. Um, but these, these latest two records, I kind of did some digging and I, as far as I could tell, these two sound like this, whereas nothing before it really does. Um, and maybe one of the one of the newer ones is uh, was produced by Bonnie Vare. I don't know. They've had some like strange strange producers for some of the some of these records too. I don't know, but check them out if you if that sounds like it's your thing. <laughs> is that how you actually say that? I always slows Bon Iver. Man, I'm a fucking. I think it's yes. I think it's Bon Bonnie Vare. And then there was like because when when he first started winning awards, I remember there were like young kids tweeting. Who's Bonnie Bear? (laughs) (laughs) Learn something new every day. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've been listening to. Uh, As for me, reading, I was on a reading streak for a bit. I still got a bunch of film books that I got that just haven't touched in the last few days or I guess at this point, a few weeks, but whatever. Uh, watching, I've been on a tear because I started actually using my letterbox or the cinematic void letterbox for more than just keeping track of the movies I've screened. I've started keeping track of the things I've been watching so far this year and try to do little reviews and that kind of stuff. I'm not going to list everything because like I was on a fucking tear. You were like, damn, dude, you've been watching a fuck ton of movies lately. I'm like, <laughs> I, I actually had the time to do it. I'm probably not going to be that prolific for too much longer, but here's a few of the things I've been watching. I I started off New Year's Day by watching Ruggiero Diodato's House on the Edge of the Park with David Hess and John Morgan, one of the great sleazy Italian exploitation movies, classic video nasty. And of course, since we've already been mentioning a lot, another one of those last house on the left type movies. So if we, whenever we do that episode, We'll be definitely talking about this one. <laughs> uh, I also finally cracked open um, Vinegar Syndrome's restoration of Flesh for Frankenstein. I uh, really love the Sever- what Severn did for Blood Blood for Dracula. You know, same filmmaker, Paul Morrissey. I'm, I still like Blood for Dracula better, but I think this restoration looks top notch. You know, both I think both restorations for these movies. I'm not trying to make the labels compete against each other or whatever, but at the end of the day, I still like Blood for Dracula better than Flesh for Frankenstein, but still a good movie. I've also been working my way through the All the Haunts Be Ours box set that was curated by Kayla Janice for the Woodlands Dark documentary. Bunch of different folk horror films from around the world. I've been kind of working in reverse. I started with the two BBC movies and work my way towards the the front of the box set, which is Eyes of Fire and stuff like that. I've also been on a bit of a 70s film kick. I watched Busting with Elliot Gould and Robert Blake. Have you ever seen that one? No, I haven't. You'll enjoy it. It's a 70s vice cop movie. Definitely very, very un-PC. There's a great, <laughs> like, like, very, very un-PC. So if, like, if you don't want to hear people say really terrible stuff and they're the heroes, can't recommend that one. But like there, there's a really amazing, they shot at the marketplace that's downtown. There's a really incredible action sequence in there. And I hadn't seen the movie in a while, but like rewatching is like, God damn, that is so fucking good. So if you're the seventies cop movies, definitely check that out. 
Speaking of 70s cop movies, I also watched The Stone Killer starring Charles Bronson. This is um, him and Michael Winter. Michael Winter did Death Wish and that kind of stuff. This is their take on Dirty Harry in a way. There's also a Hall of Fame dummy drop in this movie. So if you're looking for dummy drops, the Stone Killer delivers. And speaking of Bronson, and I also watched, rewatched, I should say, Mr. Majestic, where Bronson plays a watermelon farmer who's being harassed by some mobsters. And all I got to say is don't fuck with um, Bronson's melons. And then kind of the wrap things up here. I went on a Ellen J. Pakula kind of 70s paranoia thriller marathon of sorts. I rewatched the Parallax View, Clute. And the more as I rewatched Clute, I realized we fucked up really bad and not including it in the Giallo adjacent episode. So I feel like I don't want to say this year, but I'll say we're. I'm just going to make up episodes that we're going to eventually do at some point, but we're going to do another Giallo Jason episode. And I think we're going to talk at length about Clute because it's fucking great. I've actually watched it twice this year already. Nice. Like it's like, I, I always liked that movie, but like all the Pakula movies have been like hit really hard for some reason. So it's like, it's been really enjoyable rewatches. And of course you can't, you can't, Watch the first two without watching the third one, which is all the president's men mm-hmm. getting in that Watergate. Uh, listen wise, I put on how do you describe this? Like a psychedelic grindcore band? It's plutocracy. Would you say psychedelic grindcore or just like really fucked up? Uh, man, I you know I've never I never thought of them as being psychedelic. I never thought of it that way. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that I somehow never consider that. I um, mean, I, I, I'm going to say, like, if you never heard Plutocracy, like, it, members went on to be in bands like Agents of Satan and No Less and, of course, Spaz. And, like, it's it's grindcore, you know, but, like, it gets really weird. And I think it's, I think it's because they allegedly or... I guess been confirmed. They all smoked a lot of PCP while making the music. So, but like I, the reason why I say psychedelic, maybe not the early stuff, but the later stuff after they had done no less, which definitely dips its toes into like psych rock, mm-hmm. like those later records, which are the two I listened to, which are sniping pigs and all for the pigs. Like there's definitely some, I don't want to say real psychedelic interludes, but like there's some definitely like, psychedelic like guitar noodling mixed in with the fucking blast beats and insane screaming like you know i I don't know if i can recommend plutocracy to anyone because like you get all kinds of vocal ranges especially the one guy did this like the high pitch stuff and then like i think no less capitalized on that high pitch voice and like shoved it in more plutocracy is not as heavy in it but like different gang vocals crazy grindcore Lots of like samples, lots of hip hop samples, interludes, that kind of stuff. If you're in a weird grindcore or re- weird metal music that likes hip hop samples and a little bit of psych rock, check out some plutocracy. I also listened to the soundtrack to the Scary of 61st by Eli Kessler, I believe is his name. And I guess I'd say he's electronic or noise artist. I don't really know that much. I just, I, love this movie and i was like you know what i want to kind of listen to the soundtrack and when we talk about giallo jason and stuff like that this soundtrack kind of reminded me of some of those weirder more coney soundtracks not saying exactly like it but like 
in the same kind of vibe, like sparse, weird instruments and that kind of stuff. I think that Eli plays in, um, I think it's called One O Tricks Point Never. Like it's kind of really a solo project of this one guy, but um, but he plays with a full band, and I, I'm I'm pretty sure that that the guy Eli that did the Scary of Sixty First soundtrack, uh, maybe plays live, plays in the live band, and like played on, uh, like I don't know one of those like late night TV shows I saw fairly recently, and they played, and I think. I think he was playing with them. I don't know. It's it's that um, <laughs> you know, it's the scariest sixty first. So he's in that he's in the Red Scare uh, extended universe. So I <laughs> so maybe he <laughs> like is Eli. I think maybe Eli is the one that that just had a baby with Anna. I don't know. We can cut all this out. <laughs> as, no, I, we're, as we're... I talk as I talk about Jim DeHaven being in the uh, cinematic void extended universe. Uh, I by by the way, because we're going to leave all this shit in Bruce Holacek, (laughs) Holacek pointed out that Jim DeHaven now has a letterbox. And I the second I found that out, I sent that to you. This has no bearing on anyone outside of me, Nick and Bruce Holacek. But if you want to follow the legendary Jim DeHaven, his username is the DeHaven. See what he's listening to or not listening. See what he's watching or whatever. He'll probably get freaked out and then delete it and then go back to obscurity. But I, and that's the the DeHaven T H E D E H A V E N the DeHaven. There you go. So now you can get some context when we from a random person from Maryland that we talk about. Uh, getting back on topic here. I mean, you know. Honestly, we were pretty on topic most of this podcast. So, of course, it derails in like the last few minutes that we're recording it. But whatever. I've also been listening to Ghostface Killer, Supreme Clientele. One of the best hip hop records ever made. I don't know why I put it on. Just in that mood. And the last thing I listened to is this band called Dressel Amorosi, which is like I think one of the members was in Claudio Seminetti's um, Demonia, then later Goblin Incarnation. And then I think he plays with Fabio Frizzi now. I saw Jesse from Diabolic talk about this record. It's called Death Mentha. And he's like, basically the way Jesse posted about it, he said like, this is the only band I've heard that's actually nailed the Goblin sound in a modern context. Okay. And I put it on and sure as shit, nails the goblin so it it's on all the streaming platforms all that definitely definitely check it out it's it's some pretty good shit but that wraps up this episode of the cinematic void podcast i hope everyone's been enjoying january giallo around the country be it at lost fields three the music box coolidge corner you know virtually central cinema in knoxville wherever you've been getting your giallo fix i hope you've been enjoying it all that content coming from Cinematic Void. Until next time, see See you in the the void. void.